Hello and welcome to this week's Standing With Refugees podcast and thank you for joining us. I'm Paul Hutchings, one of the founders of Refugee Support Europe and this week I'm talking to Melina McCall, who's the co-founder of the United Tastes of America, who founded it with Kate McCaffrey. And I'm here because we talked to some people at Montclair in a meeting that you'd organised last night. Thank you very much for that and thanks for talking to me. No, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with everyone here. I was very happy to do that and uh, it was very interesting to hear about what you're doing here with the United Tastes of America, which I think is a great name, bringing together people with food. Is that a fair Yeah, we, we see food as the great equaliser. Everybody mm. eats and when you break bread you can sit there with your biggest enemy, your best friend. It doesn't really matter. Mm. It's also a great opportunity for people to show their talents, their culture, their history mm. and their life in a very positive way. Mm. Yeah, I think it's great. How did you get started doing this, Melina? So a few years ago, towards the end of 2015, the then governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, announced that New Jersey would no longer accept Syrian refugees and went further and stated that even an orphan under the age of five was a terrorist threat and therefore they wouldn't be allowed into the state. And what was his reason for that, do you know? I cannot begin to understand mm. why people don't want to welcome other people in, so I can't answer that. I mm. um, can't speak for what he was saying. I can only say that both myself and Kate, and we didn't know each other at this time, felt that we needed to respond to this and to respond to the Islamophobia and xenophobia, but more specifically Islamophobia that was really in the airwaves then and especially emanating from our, our head of state. And we wanted to not try and out-bully a bully, but to respond mm. in a positive way, mm. as much uh, for self-preservation, so <laughs> it wouldn't eat us up as for anything else. And so we looked at what we could do to make a stand and stand with people who might be feeling rather isolated at that period of time. Mm. And what a great thing to do. And then, I mean, you said there about the breaking of the bread and how important that is, but how did you come to do what you're doing now? So we started with something which seemed simple, simple enough. <laughs> um, of course, it was pretty big when I look back on it but um, it was just coming up to Christmas and our logic was Jews and Muslims don't have that much to do on Christmas Day so why not bring them together so we put together what I have come to learn is a traditional American Jewish Christmas um, of takeout Chinese food and we invited all um, is that a thing yeah it is it is the standard um, growing up in England my Christmas Day was what you would imagine a traditional English Christmas meal would be of uh, turkey and roast potatoes Mm. and all the trimmings Um, but people would gather together it was everyone had the day off work and would get together Mm. and over here I've discovered that it is uh, going to see a movie and getting Chinese food so we skipped the movie part um, focused on the food part and we put, pulled this thing together in 10 days. So first we reached out to all the local Muslim organizations and mosques and invited anybody who wanted to join us to come to this mm. event. And the synagogue that we're both members of very generously agreed to host it. And in the course of the different conversations we had uh, inviting people, we ended up very fortuitously with 10 newly arrived Syrian resettled families. I mean, they, some of them had been in the States for 10 days at that point in wow. time. But it was really an amazing coming together of, of different people. We mm. got the food from, because we had the halal issue and the kosher issue, um, we ended up having vegetarian glut kosher, which is kind of the highest level of kosher food, from a local uh, kosher takeout. Mm. And they were very generous, so we went, I went in and explained what we were doing. Uh, they didn't hesitate. There was none of what is this perceived notion of how Jews view Muslims or Muslims view Jews at all. They were mm. just like, yes, what can we do to help? And they... 
uh, were very generous in, what, in, in the, their pricing and they delivered to us on the day. Um, and then we wanted to seize this opportunity as a, as a way to also build bridges within the local community. There are many different community, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but just people tend to stick with their own. So mm. we uh, put a message out about it and we had some people gave up their Christmas, people who do observe Christmas as a traditional mm. Christian day said, no, we want to be with you on that day. Mm. Um, so we had over 200 people wow. and, um, and it was an incredible evening. Some people played piano. We put out games on the tables that didn't require language. So Jenga featured large. We had beanbag throws, uh, all, all these kinds of things. And uh, one of the most striking moments was uh, one of these newly arrived people, a man called Muhammad, uh, stood up and said, oh, we're all the children of Abraham. In my country, I could never show that to my children, but here tonight I can. Uh. And uh, that was really special. Mm. Um, and something that I think people may not be aware of is the prevalent narrative in Syria towards Jews and Israel, and they are pretty interchangeable there as terms, is extremely negative, probably one of the biggest pejorative terms you could use. One of the strongest insults would be to call someone a Jew. So here were people arriving in a new country after having undergone very harrowing times to get here and being displaced and having lost everything in, in their own country in their civil war. And the first invitation they receive is from, from the Jews in their house of worship. And they came. Yeah. And uh, that struck us as an enormous leap of faith and something that we, we really cherish then and continue to respect and appreciate to this day. Mm. I mean, and that was two and a half years ago now, but that message still seems like a, such a powerful thing, especially when you see what's happening in the Middle East. Like you say, I think a lot of people see Jewish and Israeli government as the same thing. Of course it isn't. No, there are links, and just like in anything else, there are people here and, and all over the world who are Jewish and agree with the Israeli government, and people who are Jewish who disagree with mm. the Israeli government, and that's probably a story for another day, yeah. about another <laughs> 40 hours of, of tape, so we won't go into that today. But I want to say that, this was kind of going back to this, so we had this one-off event, mm. and it was more a case of doing than thinking. So we, we had this event... And then through that, we got to know the families. And hospitality is extremely important culturally to Syrian families that we encountered and, yeah. and in the Middle East in general, mm. regardless of your faith or your cultural or ethnic identity. And the problem for Kate and myself was there's only so much we can eat. So we talk about putting on the, the kibber kilos and, 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 and developing our baklava bellies and wanting to, to share the wealth. So that was the germ of where the idea of doing something with food could enable us to work with people who are trying to integrate into a new world with all kinds of complexities that come with that. But perhaps this would provide a pathway that they could do so with some dignity and be involved in making their future rather than a more traditional notion of the charity of handouts. Mm. Well, I mean, and uh, you say a few things there that we've been working really hard to try and do as well. You know, that, that idea of dignity... Uh, not charitable handouts, um, helping people to stand on their own two feet. And the other thing you said there as well was um, an act of doing rather than thinking. And I think uh, there's real power in just doing something, because ideas are quite cheap, aren't they? So I think you did that all that work to get that first meal up and running, but then there's all the work that follows doing all the other meals. Uh, how many do you think you've done so far? Well, last time we counted, we had ah. over... 400, but it changes weekly. Changes weekly. So, so the structure has, has is very different now. Um, so just to backtrack a little bit in, in the narrative, mm. there we were ballooning and uh, <laughs> thinking that perhaps we needed to find a way to not be doing that. 
And we thought, what about having dinners in people's homes? Because a home is a safe and warm and welcoming environment. Mm. And it would be an opportunity for our new neighbours. And I use that term very specifically because we have been told, um, in fact, this, the first time we heard this was from, from a boy of about 12, how much he hates being called a refugee. Mm. That's not his identity. Mm. And as soon as you call someone a refugee or any other class of person in, in that way, um, everything else kind of disappears. Mm. And, and that's the lens through which they're viewed. And he didn't want to be, he wants to be viewed as a 12 year old kid having his life here. Mm. And uh, if he chooses to share his story, he will. So we talk about our new neighbors um, or our friends or our cooks, uh, but we try to stay away from the language of, of refugeedom, mm. um, except in terms of explaining what our program is about. Mm. But part of what our program is about is education and understanding who our constituency is and what they want. This is self-determination is critically important for somebody to thrive and, and start a new life. So Kate and I thought, well, let's try a couple of dinners in somebody's home and ask, we will ask if they want to do this, but ask the w women if they would like to cook and have a meal hosted in an American's home. And then this is a place where they can meet Americans as equals. In fact, they're the the person with the edge because they're providing this incredible food mm. and they can share through the food their history and their culture and something some of the riches of Syria where they come from which isn't just the images that we see on the news all the time because before there was the rubble there were buildings mm. and before there were people being wounded there were people going to the shops and going to work and having professions and along with all of that was this massive cultural element from architecture to literature to art to music and very much food. Mm. And our cooks come from different parts of Syria. I have to say we don't only have Syrian cooks, but the, most of our cooks are from there. And uh, we will be expanding our program to others, but our primary constituency is our 40-plus cooks, mm. of which 39 are from Syria. <laughs> so... But to say that in itself seems like a massive achievement as well, to found and involved that many cooks from the Syrian community? Well, we started with just a couple and word spread and they, they've come to us and if we were in, in the real business world, you know, we would be a, I'd be polishing my halo right now because we, <laughs> we have a 100% retention rate of our cooks. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and by choice. And we have fostered this trust, which is really what it's about, mm. you know, and we're there for the duration and they see that and that has enabled us to have this platform to grow from so we started off with two dinners each i hosted two kate hosted two and we had two one that was women only because we wanted a room and a space where um, any of the dynamics that are to do with gender would, would not just wouldn't be present mm. and that is a, a shorthand for again a very long conversation about different cultures and different roles and the fact that what my position on something might be could be completely different from the position of one of the people we're working with and it's completely irrelevant. I see and Kate sees that our job is not to judge, decide or in announce how somebody should be living but to help create a space where they are free to make their own decisions mm. and to live according to the codes that they want to live whether or not we agree with them. Mm. So There are boundaries to that though, aren't there? Absolutely, but taking off the table things to do with safety and health and yeah. morality and talking about, for example, choices of dress. We think that's important. And we work directly with the women, and that's also very deliberate, hmm. um, to have a place for women to feel free and able to express themselves and be strong 
as strong a personality as they want to be. To be clear about that, so your 39 Syrian cooks, or your 40 cooks, are all women? We had a couple of men. Yeah. We have a couple of couples in uh -huh. there. We didn't, we didn't set out expressly to say that we're a women-only organisation, mm. and we're not. But we definitely focus more heavily in, in that direction, mm. partly by happenstance and now maybe more deliberately. And what's I the thinking say. behind being more deliberate? To our understanding, which is only two and a half years old, I would like to say, and there are no PhDs in this between us in this specific area, amongst the most vulnerable within an already vulnerable population of, of resettled refugees are women. Mm. And culturally, many of these women come from a background where they would stay in their home and they would not venture forth. And then if you add on top of that, that for many people who have been displaced and have traveled some kind of route seeking refuge or asylum, many, many of them have experienced some kind of trauma that is to do with their gender. And that makes them even more cautious about engaging in the bigger world. So we've created a platform which is safe to do that and because we know this about the refugee population we think if we have found a means to enable women to come out and mm. engage and integrate then we should definitely capitalize on this opportunity and build on it mm. i guess the other measure of success is you know because these meals have to be hosted by other people that that's actually happened you know, locally here, and I guess mostly it's in Montclair in New no, Jersey? No, it's not. Um, no. It was. Uh, well, so first of all, Kate doesn't even doesn't live in Montclair. She oh. lives in a, a two towns over in another town called Maplewood. So those first four events that we did in... The first one we did was actually on 9-11, and again, you know, shifting what that day means yeah. a little bit. So we just did two each, and we thought, let's see what happens. And then we very strategically chose people who we hoped would want, then want to host. Sure. So we are in the best sense of the word a pyramid scheme, I suppose. Yeah. In that, in order to host an event, you have to have attended one, and that enables us to replicate it without us having to be present, because we have some very specific aims in how an evening should be constructed, and so therefore somebody needs to have attended one to understand that. But we very much serve two constituencies: the the resettled families that we've talked about, and the Americans who live here already, who needed, I would say, two different things. One was some form of validation of how they feel about what's going on, you know, an opportunity to stand up and, and be counted and, and be in a room of people who feel similarly. Who feel they want to support the Syrian refugees. Who, who, who want, or, and also just, you know, when you hear your governor saying something like that, he's your elected representative. So representative means they represent you. Well, he certainly didn't represent yeah. me, and he doesn't represent, when he says things like that, any of the people who are attending our events. Mm. And so they want to be able to say, he doesn't speak for me. And now many people would expand that to say, that the current president does not speak for me mm. over, over these issues. And so there is a space for people to feel better about that, and there's an opportunity for people to take action on this worst humanitarian crisis since the Second World War of mm. displaced persons globally. So those who cannot come and volunteer for refugee support, those who cannot go to Europe and, and pluck somebody out of the water or stop a civil war or do any of those things... Mm they can absolutely have a concrete and positive impact on somebody who has been impacted by what they're seeing, help them find their way and, and create a future here. And the other part of it is that we're bringing together people who wouldn't normally come together. Mm. Like we, we get calls all the time you know, from people who want to, and our program is, you know, we're looking at ways of expanding, well, we are expanding it, and then we're always looking at other ways of enabling others to expand it further. 
I really want to do it now. How can I find a refugee? And it's like, if it's not, there's not like dial a refugee. There's no, no. and that's not what it's about. Mm. So there's a lot of subtle complexity about our program. Um, one example I would give you about that is understanding that just because you want to hear somebody's hard story doesn't mean that you have a right to that. Mm. and doesn't mean that there should be an expectation that that's what they're going to want to share. Mm. Because for you, it's a tragic story. For them, it's a living trauma. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's often the case, of course, that if they start talking about it with PTSD being the way it is, they relive it, and that doesn't just go away. They, they, they carry that even... They continue to carry it with them. It's not like it's therapy sometimes. Absolutely, and but the other piece is, you know, what is different today from just a few short years ago is with the internet and other forms of communication... There is an absolute immediacy. And so when you and I turn on the news and mm. see that there's been a bombing or a shelling or a chemical attack, whatever, it's awful. And mm. we're, we're, we're devastated by it. But it's not our cousins. It's not our neighborhood. It's not our friends. It's not our family. It's not our mother, brother, sister, son, whoever, who's still there. So they not only have the trauma of what they've been through themselves and for many uh, an iteration of survivor's guilt. Yeah. But also the persistent and constant anxiety and worry about those who are still there and living it. And so we understand as much as we can, we understand that. And we also want people to um, be in charge of their own dialogue and narrative. So if somebody chooses to share their story, that's great. And there is a space for that. But if they choose not to, that is equally fine. And if the dialogue that I have with somebody across the table and we don't have a shared verbal language, but we have our frenemy Google Translate, as we like to say, because you never quite know what you're getting. Um, So we have that, but the first thing we have is we have the food, so we can start by talking about the food. And you'll hear stories about the food. Um, We have one family who doesn't cook, but they're still a part of our broader family. Mm. We're kind of a big family. Um, Because the, the cooking in their household would be the wife, and she says it's too upsetting. It reminds her of cooking with her sisters and her mother, who she's lost. So she doesn't want to. But she loves to come to the meals and have that feeling of being a part of something. Mm. So we are always making connections so that there's kind of networking with a very small N of Syrians meeting people who might be able to offer them work or find them something or whatever it is. There's that cultural exchange that's going on. Um, and then it's also they're meeting other people who are in a similar situation to them who they don't know. Mm. So all kinds of friendships have come, have blossomed. Mm. Um, of course. When we do larger events, those are prepared by a team of cooks mm-hmm. and the cooks themselves create their own teams. Mm. So that's as much um, independent and ownership as is possible um, is theirs as far as we're concerned. We don't dictate the menu for the meals and we encourage a lot of kind of learning by doing so. As an example of that, you know, when we first started this, part of what a host would be responsible for or we would help them organise was somebody would be a driver who would collect the family. Okay. And then as time has gone on, because now two years later, now they, many of them have their own cars or somebody has a car who's going to come as a guest because we also try to have another couple, another Syrian couple at the table so it's not totally one-sided in the room. But they drive, they figure out how to get there. And yeah, sure, people get lost and people are late and so on. But we don't think it's that helpful to never give the space for somebody to learn and become independent. Yeah, you you have to recognize what needs are are there and serve those needs enough to give somebody the strength and the capacity to then be independent, whatever that might mean. Recognizing that it's a vulnerable population and there will be, you know, two steps forward, one step back for some people. 
And the other piece I'd just like to add to that yeah. is everyone's different. Again, this, this, that's why we try to avoid collective terms. You know, mm. what, two refugees in the room. It's, it's not, it's two people in a room. And, yeah. and one of them might be warm and fuzzy and the other one might be stroppy. Or one of them might be anxious and the other one might be laid back. And there's personality. There's not just the trauma. There's personalities as well. And it's important to remember that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the this urge to help them with everything that they that you think that they might need help with, we see on the camp a lot. But you know, they've made some pretty treacherous and difficult journeys all by themselves already. They exactly. can they can navigate around some streets in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then other things pop up that you wouldn't think about. So you know, this mm. endlessly complex lexicon of, of organisation, and this you know we learn we learn in the moment. We'll get a phone call from from the host saying. Where's the cook? They should be there. They should be there. And it turns out they've been there for half an hour sitting outside because they are daunted by getting out of the car and going ringing the bell of a strange house mm. or a strange building, and they won't do it. Mm. We've moved on from there, but I mean, that, that a lot of times that was going on. Mm. So all these little things that you don't think about. So there's loads of benefits here in terms of understanding and support for people who've come from other countries and are trying to settle and people here who, who want to help and understand where does money feature in all of this? I mean, the food needs to be bought. Yes. So, and someone's paying for a right, meal, right? So, again, this is another complexity of navigation <laughs> and hundreds of hours of working with advisors on everything from benefits and, and work and what people can do and can't do and training and so on. So it really depends. It varies from family to family and the structure varies and we are looking at our own structure because as I said at the beginning we did we did rather than thought mm. and we're now at the point where we're fitting in very consciously more thinking and a little less doing to make sure our structure is robust and that everything we're doing is um, what needs to be done to support people sure. um, and there's emergency funding but you know how, how do you structure it so that Again, you're not creating something that isn't realistic mm. financially. You know, and we're a fledgling organisation. We need funds to rent a commercial kitchen and we want to rent the commercial kitchen in the area where the cooks live. Mm. So while I could get a kitchen around here in my town, that's not serving the needs of the cooks. Mm. So we want to do that. And we do borrow commercial kitchens all over the place, but we'd actually like to have a home base. We're testing one. We've done some professional training in it and all these things take funds so yeah. we need funding and it's not handout funding mm. that's not what we're about and as I said before there are emergencies and the emergency is a matter of survival people are coming and they're not receiving enough to make ends meet yeah of course um, so there could be something like a need for rent support or to some of them as I said are getting vehicles um, and sometimes somebody will have a vehicle donated but that doesn't mean there's any money to put gas in the car mm. or to pay for the insurance mm. etc so there are all those things, but we have to recognise that, you know, this is not the only vulnerable population around. So we're trying to be yeah. equitable or as, as much as possible. One area where we have done a fair bit of fundraising for, and uh, because we thought this was particularly egregious, is something called the travel loan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. So the US is one of only two countries now, I think Australia is still doing this, where uh, when you come here, well, when you're, when you're in your refugee camp, for example, in Jordan, and you're signing your big stack of papers, mm. you sign an agreement that when you come here you will reimburse the government for bringing you over. So you turn up here and <laughs> six months into being here you get a bill and for most of our families that bill is seven to $8,000. Oh, man. And we thought, well, that is really egregious. 
Um, and really... It's like an admission fee, isn't it? It's... <laughs> the, I don't even have the words. This no. would be a moment where radio doesn't help because you're just hanging your mouth open in horror. So anyway, we thought, you know, well, this really tips the balance in terms of, yes, there are many impoverished populations, mm. vulnerable populations, you know, in, in any town in the United States, but most of them are not handed a massive bill when they've arrived and yeah. their world is still completely upside down and then yeah. you get this big bill. So we did a fundraiser for one family, like we, the synagogue, we, what happened was with those first 10 families is they were, and I use the term very loosely, they were adopted by different communities so that each family would have a whole congregation looking out for them and it worked better and worse for different families and different congregations. So we thought, okay, so we'll do this with our family. We can't do it for all of them. We don't have the capacity, but we'll try it for ours and see if we can create a template that others could use. Mm. So we had to raise $7,000. So we mm. thought, let's riff on that seven. So can we raise $7,000 in seven days? And we set up our little fundraiser and we did a test launch and we raised over $7,000 in less than 72 hours. So still on the seven. But... <laughs> But then we stopped because we thought if we get any more, we won't know what to do with this other money. Like we don't have a, this is right. a very specific thing. And we don't want to f foster any resentment. Um, it's a tight knit community. Yeah, and it's very course. complex. So we did that and some other people have used that model. So that's a, another money element that's uh, really shocking for most people. Mm. I'm still, sh even though I'm used to it, I'm still shocked by it. Yes. Uh, it's hard to fathom kind of who decided that that was a good idea and why. Anyway. And ditto for how many other policies that are in place or are, are being added to the, the list of cruel and, I would say, inhumane actions on people. Well, it's been great to come here and meet some of the community and see that uh, there's a local grassroots organisation that is doing something which is the complete opposite of that. Welcoming, loving and supportive and bringing people together and bringing people together with food. How can people find out more? Check out our website, yeah. and that is at www.theunitedtastesofamerica, as in tasty food. And when you come to the website, please subscribe, and we will send you our newsletters, and you will hear all the fun things that are going on. Our most recent fun thing, of course, was having you come and talk and tell a story about another aspect of this refugee story. And we have events coming up. We've grown. We still do our, our cornerstone project we call Syria Supper Club. And that's the one we've been talking about. And yeah. out of that, we've grown and we do corporate social impact events. So we come into businesses and we, we do a dinner. And there are different iterations of it. But one of the more fun ones is when staff bring their families mm. and our cooks bring their families. And in this kind of beautiful medley of chaos, Everyone has a great meal and a great time, and, and it's just a really nice, relaxed evening. And that's really important for us as well, that this is a time when these newly arrived or relatively newly arrived families come and meet Americans, and it's not because they're having some bureaucratic, complex thing they have to deal with. It's mm. just people who are enjoying their food, comparing notes on kids, mm. sitting there and enjoying whatever is going on around them. It's just you know a, a safe space in the best sense of that. And so I suppose that on the website people can see events that they can come and eat at. Yep. And then people can see how they could host an event in their own homes themselves. That's right. So we would love for anybody who wants to host an event in your own home. Mm. You have to come and eat with us first yeah. as a guest, which is hardly a burden to mm. come and have a nice night out and meet new people. Or for your business or your community or your congregation. Uh, we've done events at the local Y's, um, YMCA's, um, JCC's, which are Jewish version of the Y, I guess. Different churches, different congregations, or you name it, we've done it. 
and uh, and you have one of your cooks cooking for a bar mitzvah. At That's the right. Synagogue well, today. we have a team. We have a team, a team of cooks um, yeah. preparing a bar mitzvah for this weekend, which is a, a really nice way to celebrate and be part of a program while not having to deal with catering. And uh, that togetherness is a lovely message to end on. Thank you, Melina, for standing with refugees, and thank you for all you're doing. And to Kate as well, who can't be here, but is here in spirit. Thank you, Paul, and thank you to John. Yeah. <laughs> thank you to everyone listening. We talk to someone every week and make it available to download on Monday. You can subscribe on Podbean and iTunes, download, find it on our website. Please tell us what you think by email, paul at refugeesupport.eu. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for us and you will find us. And if you have any comments on this talk, any other talk, suggestions for who else we can talk to, please let us know. We're on Facebook too. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>